Welcome to How to Live Podcast with Dr. Chip Dodd, a series to help us see who we are made to be so we can do what we are made to do. Hello, this is Dr. Chip Dodd. Welcome to the How to Live Podcast Uncut. Thank you for being a part of this podcast today, and I appreciate you very, very much for listening. Um, I'm grateful for people to listen, and uh, because in so many ways, I'm going to do this anyway. I kind of can't stop it, so I have the joy of getting to do it, and I, I do definitely appreciate anyone who can receive anything good from it. I'm so grateful that um, you're out there, and I'm grateful, like I said, I get to do it. Today, um, I want to share with you about one of the great paradoxes of living fully is the gift of uh, the gifts of failure and the the uh, being freed from getting trapped in comparison and then the daring uh, of living gratefully. So let's start with uh, the gifts of failure. Many of us carry around inside of our heads some very uncompromising or almost like secret messages that we hear in whispers. But these things, these, uh, this power is the uncompromising power of shoulds, quote, shoulds, unquote. And shoulds end up limiting our capacity to receive and thrive in life successfully. These shoulds, they act as taskmasters and judges, and they act as critics of our, of our every move. They are our, our chronic assessors that exact a tax that burdens us all the way into infinity. The shoulds sit as finger-pointing tribunal uh, that is always slightly disappointed, almost always a bit disapproving, and always on the edge of being disgusted. And see, these shoulds, when we fail them, uh, brings us to the expectation of disgust related to to others who taught them to us. And disgust, by the way, is a very, very powerful force. In fact, a a study by Fawcett and Fawcett from years ago stated that a a great amount of parenting between mother-child, father-child is done through the look of disgust. Just the very look of disgust can actually put a child in a frozen position for a moment, even in terms of literally behaviorally, and or rest assured that the look of disgust pierces, even if the child doesn't seem to react to it as one expects them to. But but the look of disgust can be extraordinarily controlling to the emotional life of a person or child. How come? Because the look of disgust is the 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 appearance of wanting to get something that is in us, out of us. It's almost like the look of the beginning of, of wanting to spew something like disgusting and sickening, poisonous out of our mouths. So when we look at another human being with the sense of their, the experience of them is poisonous to us, that is a wanting to throw them up. Also, the look of disgust in the animal kingdom, that snarl, is actually the beginnings of a snarl. And the look of disgust as a snarl and in, in uh, the animal kingdom is the beginning of threat. And the threat means either I'm going to be alpha, you're going to be beta, and if you don't cooperate, there's more danger to come your way. This threat will turn into an actual consequence. So the look of disgust is poisonous spewing, sickening, um, wanting to vomit, 
turns into a snarl. The snarl is a threat of a growl, and the growl is the threat of death. So this, the power of shoulds, who would want to uh, disgust someone? Who would want to disappoint someone who, who they love? And who would want to be disapproved of by someone who, who they love? So we're born with this hunger for connection, and the power of should becomes the threat of becoming disconnected if we don't live up to some standard that ultimately, almost always, is impossible. So the, the, the shoulds end up, the should tribunal sits before us, so to speak, and it becomes something in our heads, but the should tribunal, they actually congratulate themselves for their own patience with us and not simply throwing us out for never measuring up. And we risk kowtowing to them as if the shoulds are God speaking to us through them. And we follow their edicts to death sometimes. They should all over us is another way to say it. These shoulds get all over us and it stinks. If we are um, successful through doing the hard work of appearing to accomplish what the shoulds say we should do, we lose everything our lives could have been, full of living, able to love deeply, and being deeply in love. Um, we end up being unattractive to other people's hearts that look for freedom to thrive. If we live in shoulds, uh, shoulds towards others, shoulds towards ourselves, and, and, and uh, we end up being finger pointers about a person having to operate under the law that we dictate so that we could be acceptable. And those of us who are Christians, we know that the, that the law is impossible. But through connection and spiritual uh, change and involvement, we naturally spiritually hunger to fulfill the law. That is uh, something we want to do because doing unto others as we would want them to do unto us is sort of a, a, a consequence or an experience of empathy. If we are successful, like I say, in doing the shoulds, we lose everything our lives could have been. You should be perfect. You should have known better. You shouldn't make those mistakes. You, you shouldn't ever look like that. You shouldn't say those things. And, and in a lot of ways, I get the experience that if, if people don't stay within a certain guidelines, then there, there are death and consequences. However, there's a difference between you do this or else and this would be really good for you if you could understand what this is. The, the tribunal, though, uh, of shoulds, which is always threatening um, abandonment or rejection. That's how the control occurs, that it wants control over, the shoulds want control over your emotional vulnerability. And therefore, because you do not get to express emotional vulnerability, you really never develop emotional resilience. Shoulds force us to isolate truth-telling from ourselves to ourselves and others. In other words, shoulds make us hide our hearts because of the threat of what will happen if we express our hearts. And this is very important because even down in one of the most beautiful expressions of human relationship with God and others is the book of Genesis and the great cracking up of the universe so to speak, occurred because we hid out from our hearts instead of crying out from our hearts in the garden. So it seems very important to me. The, the tribunal of shoulds depends upon our own toxic shame to control us. The false belief that my powerlessness and need as a human being 
my need to say what I feel, say what I need, and, and remain response-able in that is somehow defines me as inadequate and incompetent. That, that the shoulds force us to develop what I call emotional legalism, that if I'm having a feeling, I'm doing something wrong. If, if I'm sad, I'm weak. If I'm lonely, I'm defective. If I'm angry, I'm sinning. If I'm afraid, I'm pathetic. If I have healthy shame or being in need, it means that I haven't learned something. If I have guilt, I'm condemned. If I have gladness, then somehow I don't have a right to it because I haven't done enough to deserve it. And or if I have gladness, that I'm somehow punishing other people for having that. So you begin to see that when we develop shoulds all around how God created us, it becomes a legalism that suppresses how God actually made us. So we end up developing a false belief that our powerlessness over how we're created and our needs as human beings somehow defines us as inadequate and incompetent if we end up needing. And yet we're born needing. In fact, we experience the greatness of God through our neediness, through being able to say that I'm in need or I'm having feelings and we connect through feelings and needs with others and God. When it comes to the shoulds, the, the should say that you're worthless or I'm worthless for not being worthy. Um, if I do not meet some standard that actually can never fully be met because shoulds are trying to push us towards a perfection we cannot attain to, cannot attain. There's no top of the mountain in the shoulds. Even if you get to the top of one mountain, like you finally arrive at this illusory destination, the shoulds will just show you a higher peak to climb. There's no top of the ladder that we climb if we're doing it by the shoulds. There's no discovery to make somewhere uh, in the future that's going to change everything we make unless we return to how we're made. I have seen professionals and parents. I've seen great accomplishers and regular people like me suffer the tribunal's rejection. In following the shoulds, we're all seduced into comparing our inner selves to another's outer appearance And then we measure ourselves as inferior or superior compared to their outward expressions. So we're we're always sort of trapped up in secret competition. And then the compulsion of chronic comparison ends up becoming our daily lives. There are three primary shoulds that I pray and work to continue to leave behind. And the paradox is that failure to perform the shoulds ends up being my freedom. If we accept the antidote for the poison that the shoulds uh, offer, I mean, excuse me, if we accept the antidote for the poison that uh, will free us from the shoulds. And, and the number one antidote that we need to drink fully is that failure in and of itself is a gift because what failure can do for us. Um, let's just say this. No one really risks, truly risks to climb a high mountain with their full hearts uh, means that fully, uh, ultimately, the absence of fear, unless they're also willing to get hurt by slipping or even falling. So failure is the gift. Number one uh, should is that we're taught, I'm taught, perhaps you were taught, that you should become independent, meaning that if you have to depend on someone to help you too much, whatever that means, then you're a failure. If you have to depend on someone else, then somehow you're a failure. 
Number two should um, is that you should become realistic, meaning that life is about survival of the fittest, which really translates into the least affected or the least touched or the most manipulative person ends up being the winner. If you cannot become strong enough to be untouchable, then you are a hopeless whiner and a failure. And number three is you should become powerful, meaning that you must become someone who profits by using their faces, your face, to hide your own heart's experience of living in this life. If your face exposes your heart's struggles, you are considered hypersensitive, dramatic, or an inept failure. So to repeat, you should be independent, means never depending. You should be realistic, which means not dealing with the truth that you were created with inside of you. And you should become powerful, which requires the suppression of your personal presence, the truth of you. And then if you can't do independence, realism, and um, a power, then you are ultimately on some level less than and a failure. And, um, and it's amazing that we also associate independence, power, and somebody being realistic with leadership. The great irony uh, is that the three shoulds, independence, power, and realism, re- being realistic, have their tentacles wrapped around what actually makes us most fulfilled and most accomplished. In other words, it suppresses us. It has the tentacles wrapped around our inside, inside ourselves and uh, uh, outside ourselves, even in the re- relational world. In other words, we walk around in boxes, bumping into other people's boxes. By the relational world, I mean the world in which you and I have been given to live in fully and to love deeply, to love others in it deeply by being fully in relationship with ourselves, others and God. Those shoulds, they end up strangling, those three shoulds strangle our capacity to be known from within. And if we are truly created to find fulfillment in relationship, you can see how those shoulds and the emotional legalism around those shoulds ends up suffocating, ends up um, like a boa wrapping around and constricting until we're choked out of having a life. They, they end up, like I say, uh, suffocating. Our uh, uh, what makes us successful as human beings, which is the ability to live in relationship, that should strangle our capacity to be known from within. Now, there are three antidotes that I mentioned earlier. There are three antidotes to the poison of the shoulds that have infected us. And I have experienced them as that they, they can neutralize the poison of the tribunal, the staring eyes that look upon us with disappointment, Um, disgust and um, disdain on some levels, disapproval. When when these three things, these three antidotes are implemented, they can foundationally form experiences of wonderful fulfillment. Like I say, foundationally, foundationally set us up to grow into the rest of our lives. They can set us up for um, uh, blessed accomplishment because we're, we're willing to go take the risk, even knowing, knowing that we may get mud on our faces and uh, those people who carry the shoulds are going to look at us, they're going to judge us anyway, but there are people out there who will uh, give us a hand up when we fall flat in the mud because they get what it's like to be able to take the risk of living, living fully. 
and uh, that that once we're removed from the shoulds, we can also uh, be inspired to extraordinary levels of achievement. You know, for example, I've noticed over the years that that there there is a difference between a great athlete and a good athlete, and sometimes great athletes don't necessarily have what we think of as that uh, extraordinary gift of you know physical talent. But what they do have that makes them great is that they don't see anything but the ball. For example, they, they're not thinking about the eyes that are looking at them. They're thinking about what they're pursuing. And they pursue it with their whole, whole hearts, regardless of, of what people uh, think of them. So the antidotes do require, however, that a person participate um, sort of a, 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 a revolution, the, the revolution of becoming human again. In other words, a person is revolting against that which keeps them from being who God created them to be. So the first antidote that actually is uh, an answer against or, or healing of independence, false independence, is the capacity to ask for help. Asking for help, these are very short, asking for help, allows a person to gain knowledge and experience of living from people who are doing it well. The need of others opens the door to become more able to help others because we gain more experience and strength and uh, in how to live. And we also have our hope supported that if we continue to fully participate in how we're created, that frankly put, good things will come. I'll do another podcast later, how good things happen to people who are known from the inside out. So number one, ask for help. Become capable of asking for help. It frees us from independence, which allows us to become healthily dependent. And that healthy dependence actually, paradoxically, allows us to take risks independent from the shoulds that would constrain us. Paradox. Number two is uh, antidote is to feel your feelings. And when I say feel your feelings, I'm responding to uh, the eight feelings that I write about in the voice of the heart. I believe those are the core experiences of genuinely feeling without a bunch of defensiveness around our own personal experience. So feel your feelings. Doing so reveals the truths of attachment to whatever matters to us. For example, Sadness is a feeling we have whenever we lose something that truly matters to us. Um, it's a healthy expression of attachment because you don't cry over something or feel sad over something that you lose unless it mattered to, to your heart. Doing so reveals the truths of attachment to whatever matters to us. Like I just said, that uh, feeling your feelings allows you to experience the celebration of joys and the grief of losses, and everything in between them, which is called experiencing life to the full. Feeling your feelings allows us to express the hopes of our hearts and the feelings that come with the hopes that are deferred and the hopes that are fulfilled. And number three, the third antidote to the poison of shoulds, the shoulds of independence, the shoulds of power, and the shoulds of realism. Now, now remember that uh, through being dependent in a healthy way, you actually become capable of being independent from 
that which would constrain you from being who and what God calls you to be. Anyway, the third one is ask questions. Doing so, asking questions, expresses the acceptance of me knowing that it takes a lifetime to learn how to live and it takes a lifetime to learn how to love in in its truest forms. So we're going to be mistake-ridden and we, we don't come into life knowing how to live life. We come into life being capable of learning how to live life. We're all practicing living life for the first time, living in the questions, living in the need for guidance from others, going forth from the standpoint of asking questions and taking guidance and then taking risks into the next day allows us to go forth as as a way of living. Now, coming back to the, the, the three antidotes, by becoming dependent in terms of asking for help, expressing needs, um, um, uh, 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 sharing feelings, which joins us to other people, finding people of empathy, finding people of compassion, finding people who uh, have create creativity around life's problems, and uh, finding people who, who have desire for good, who are of service to others, can lead us in the way that we were actually created. And these people can help our dependence turn into independence from the shoulds. They can allow our um, uh, truthfulness in terms of how we're created, the truth of how life really works, can allow us to integrate the fact that reality happens, but that doesn't defeat the truth of how we're created. And then becoming fully present actually, ironically, makes us draw the hearts of others who are looking to live fully. So by becoming fully present, we become fully empowered to live how we're created, in other words, powerful. So this isn't an either-or proposition. Either you become independent, realistic, um, and powerful, or you become dependent, you become uh, truthful, and you become fully present as separate things. It's that you actually grow from the inside out to become, through being fully present, powerful, through being uh, truthful, you can tolerate the struggle of reality and by becoming truly dependent on that which you're made to depend upon, you become independent from that which would stop you from having the life you're created to have. We hope that you are benefiting from this podcast. If you are interested in more material from Dr. Dodd, please go to chipdodd.com or Sage Hill Podcasts. Thank you for listening. We now return to the rest of the podcast. Children grasp these three freedoms, these three antidotes. Well, actually, they're born with these freedoms. They don't need the antidote until they're poisoned by the tribunal of uh, disgust, disappointment, and disapproval. Children grasp these three freedoms and these responsibilities from birth. Jesus brought a child to stand among a gathering of people after the disciples were found arguing, arguing actually over which one of them would be the greatest. And Jesus said, it, it was Matthew 18, two and three, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
unless we change and we can't change ourselves, we return to becoming available to be changed back into who we're made to be. And through that change of humility and need, we wind up becoming who we're made to be. We, we get our eyes back. We get our uh, hearts back. And then we can get or begin to experience and see what the, the sort of the world just behind the veil is all about. When we learn again um, how to ask for help, when we learn again how to feel our feelings, when we learn again how to ask questions, that change opens the door into becoming who we were created to be instead of who the tribunal said we should be. You should be the greatest through achievement and making yourself worthy, and then you will receive all the rewards, rewards that you're made to have by being superior to other people around you is not relationship, and it's not fulfillment, and it certainly isn't love. The irony of this freedom, the irony of the, the freedom of failure, is it allows us to become properly independent and become properly realistic and properly powerful because we make decisions and accept responsibility. We recognize loss in life while pursuing our dreams, and we're capable of being resilient amidst loss. We end up having a passion of heart that ends up being a willingness to be in pain for something that matters more than pain. Our genuine neediness then allows us to become independent through dependence. We can end up being realistic in our truthfulness, and we wind up being powerful by being fully present. Our failure in the shoulds becomes our freedom to succeed fully. Our failure actually becomes a gift. And we can, we can wind up so often contaminating our lives when we wind up comparing our uh, insides to other people's outsides and always finding ourselves lacking. When we wind up discovering that other people's insides are like our insides, we together have more than we would have apart. And we wind up having a connection or a fulfillment or an experience of no longer being alone. We're in relationship and we're stronger together. Comparing separates us. It contaminates us from what we're actually created to have. And see, in spite of all of the different levels of, of outward adornment, I'll just call it outward adornment, the, the appearance, nobody has it made. And no one really in this life has it easy. Everybody has turmoil, inner turmoil. Now, we're the only creatures that move about upon the face of the earth who can use their faces to hide their hearts. And the tragedy of our strengths in so many ways is that we're expert at being able to not show what's going on within us to the people who need to know it. In some ways, the rich and the poor are not separate. The rich have discovered in some ways, perhaps sometimes more miserable than the poor, as crazy as that sounds, but the rich have discovered that they cannot buy inner peace. They cannot truly buy inner connection, inner fulfillment. And the poor can often wind up living in an, in, in an illusion that they're one lottery ticket away from inner peace. Yet in so many ways, nobody escapes what we're, what we're created to do to have the lives we're made to have. You know, examples of how we're all in turmoil that we, we all love, which means we're all going to be in struggle. And we're all going to be in pain if we love well. We all experience loss. 
We all experience worry. We all experience the future, and we're all going to experience death. In fact, the more a person ends up facing the the realities of life on life's terms, the greater our struggle on one hand, and yet on the other hand, the greater our, our joy can be when we step into how we're truly made. The more I know how much like everyone else I am, the more I can identify with others and I can care about others, which moves us towards the fulfillment of how we're created. And that can be vice versa. The more I end up, uh, the more another person sees how much like me they are from the inside out, the more they can identify with me. And in some ways, the more that they can care about me. That experience is the, what the relating in relationship. They, and, and, and relating in relationship through that vulnerability is the ground, the grounds out of which we grow into, um, fulfillment as much as we can have uh, living upon this struggling world. As to the, you know, the, the increase of struggle in, in life, uh, you know, that the, when, when we come to a point of becoming fully alive and dropping the comparisons, but looking for the, the uh, likeness, um, it does increase struggle uh, because we end up knowing others' uh, pains in life, which increases our pain because we care uh, for more than just ourselves. As to the increase of joy in our lives, to share each other's pains also shares the burden of that pain, which lessens it. And we do not carry the burdens of our lives alone. We're not made or equipped to be able to do so. So so stepping into uh, dropping comparisons and finding affinity, it not only allows us to share our struggles, but it also therefore allows us to share our celebrations, which increases the joy of joy itself. Aristotle said that a, a friend halves our sorrows and doubles our joys. Solomon said that, that two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can pick him up. And if, it's, if we're living in competition against each other through comparison, when we fall in the ditch, Mm, there may be, there's no one there to pick us up. By we living in comparison, we're living in competition. By living in competition against each other, we live alone. To see and experience life otherwise can actually multiply our misery by keeping our inner lives to ourselves and seeing others as having no struggle somehow. When I get trapped in comparing my insides to other people's outsides, I measure my internal universal human condition as a singular isolative experience, which means I am uh, one of a kind alone, unless I can compare myself to somebody I imagine has it worse. So I end up making making, uh, everyone around me either better off or worse off, but still no one else is like me. I am alone, always competing for a spot that ever is never actually sustainable. An example, a small example of, of what I mean by alone is what can happen uh, when a person is sitting at home on a Saturday night, <clears throat> having looked forward to quiet, replenishing solitude after a tough, you know, week of work or struggle or difficulty, and so they're sitting there in solitude, planning to just get some restorative time 
uh, time between this person and God. And all of a sudden, so about seven o'clock or so, they began to, so remember it's Saturday night. Saturday night has lots of labels on it. So the, the person begins to thumb through Facebook or Instagram. The presentations on Instagram and Facebook, they're all, or, or they generally, they're, they're often full of things we desire and we look and, and things that we're not doing on a Saturday night. So that we see smiles and we see hugs, we see abundance and laughter, giggling, banquets, exotic places, sunshine, snow, scuba diving, skiing, cookouts, awards, more awards, more awards. We see acquaintances that these people have by the thousands. And then then someone finishing their night with a, a, a surprise guest appearance on the late night show that we once knew when we were young and we didn't know that they had gotten to such heights and all of a sudden there's being seen by a million people uh, in, the, in the country, in the nation, and we're sitting alone by ourselves on the Saturday night. Suddenly, this desire for solitude has turned into a contempt towards who we are, where we are, how we're made, where we're living, and who we're not with. The quiet evening at home, desired greatly for just a time of replenishment, can suddenly become a place of, of just abject misery. <laughs> The problem isn't what the person is seeing, though. The problem is the potential to find what we desired in the quiet evening as somehow less than everyone else's life or better than others. If the person can find some Facebook misery out there, which is hard to come by. Either way, the comparisons contaminate the experience of one's own life. They end up contaminating the experience of my own life. I wind up getting into the anxiety and the depression of left out and missed out. And somehow my life, which was going to be a time of just rest, replenishment, returning to restorative capacities so I could end up um, pouring out more fully, spending time getting close to God, watching some some old movies that w- would have uh, you know enjoyed because of the things they helped me remember suddenly pale in comparison to what rest, what the rest of the world is doing. But if we are living our own lives and we are daring to make our own choices and we're facing our own choices, living how we really are created, that is having our sorrows and doubling our joys through relationship, we are missing very little and we're possessing everything. All of us sail in the same ship of life. We only miss the reality of what we could have when we compare our insides to other people's outsides instead of sharing our insides outwardly with other wonderful people who some, somehow they end up knowing too how much alike we, we all are. Now, all of this sets us up to being able to dare to live in, you know, it's up and down, but dare to live in gratitude, a gratefulness, appreciation, um, the beauty of surrendering to life on life's terms, at the same time knowing that through that surrender, we get in touch with who, you know, how we're made, who we're made to be, what we're made to do, and we get closer to who's we're made to be with, which is God and others who uh, are people of heart. You know, that, that and when it comes to gratitude, that, that God is real, 
uh, is often an, an obvious belief of believers. It's kind of like a the, the basic statement, but it, it winds up not being enough. The people who believe, they, they believe in the reality of God, but they often um, don't delve into the belief much beyond the point of learning more about our own belief. We strengthen our belief, but we often don't let our belief allow us to step into more that we could have through the questions of our hearts. We often don't dare to uh, go beyond God being real and uh, trouble ourselves too much beyond that point, usually until trouble strikes, for which there seems to be no answers and no help. Then we can become needy. Then we want God to be more than real, which is important and an imperative. So when trouble strikes, when we're not pleased or content, when trouble strikes, we're, we're pushed beyond belief, beyond the belief of God being real, into a territory of very real significant personal risk, a risk that can even destroy belief. We discover some very human and very real, very grown-up essential questions that we greatly fear when we are in a position of struggling with our hearts with the questions of God being beyond just real. We fear the questions because they expose the depths of our neediness, which we often run from, and also the possibility that that we could be astoundingly disappointed if we discover that real is all we get that there may not be much more beyond God is real, which is kind of a, a deism. He set everything in motion and left us to it. That's not enough if we're created for relationship. Some of the questions that we fear asking that can bring us to gratitude are, um, does God really do anything that is for me personally? Is God a, a God of intimacy? Does God actually care about me? Is God um, Relational? Does he actually care about me specifically? Does God feed his people? Does God feed me? I mean, touch my troubled, questioning, starving heart. Does God meet my needs, like actually tangibly, and even in ways that are undeniable, which means uh, the belief has moved from a mental concept to a witnessed experience that can't, can't be denied? The questions that I just asked, does God care? Does he actually feed? Does, is God personal? Does God meet needs? These questions are not scary in and of themselves. It's daring to find out the answers is what's scary. To be in need and then discover that the answers to the questions are a series of no. No, God doesn't care. No, God doesn't. He, no, God isn't personal. Put us in a position of potential savage disappointment means we no longer have an appointment with God and we don't want one because God wasn't, isn't really present. The possibility of the negative, negative results can make us do anything to stay away from the questions and, and, and end up winding up missing the gratitude of finding out that they are, those questions can be affirmed as yes, God does. They can make us do anything to avoid being in that kind of need, which ironically will ultimately create that kind of need. The more we try not to need, the more in need we become because we're more removed and less replenished 
we are in daily life to the point that we are dying of thirst and starvation, the lacking of emotional connection and contentment, security. When we block the fear of discovering the negative, we end up avoiding the questions altogether. And and to have to conclude that God is just one last fantasy of our wish to matter leaves us completely stranded. We're stranded with a belief in a God that does not personally touch our lives. And that's not enough. This belief is less useful and more impotent than even believing in rocks. Rocks become more real. Like if you fall on a rock, you you could be terribly hurt. And if a rock falls on you, you can be killed. Life of hard knocks or death leaves me having to make my own, basically, make my own life basically alone. Experiencing the reality of rocks can matter more than a belief in God. The rocks are very real. And, And for God to be truly real to us, we have to have the answers to those scary questions answered in the affirmative. The reason we even ask the questions is because we don't really know yet beyond just believing. We actually crave being cared about and we crave to be strengthened from the inside outwards. We actually are created to to need to matter and need to belong to a God who is with us in this life all the time, no matter what happens and no matter where it happens. We're actually made like that, made to be connected to God. For God to be the God who answers the questions with a yes, I care. Yes, I'm present. Yes, I feed. Yes, I meet needs. That yes is essential. Or we are all lost to whom we are made to be and what we're made to become. We're stranded. God's yes is what makes Emmanuel, which means God with us, so profound. And our questions so daringly essential to ask. We have to know in a way that we can experience these questions being fulfilled as a witness to them, an experiential memory that I mentioned earlier, which gives us empathy and compassion and uh, gives us a, a sense of trust and hope and creativity and also wants us to let others know that they can have the same thing. So we end up needing to go from belief to being a witness by asking the scary questions and finding out that the answers to the questions are yes. We have to witness God's personal care that touches our hungry hearts in a tangible, undeniable form, or our belief is useless when life on life's terms strikes. And it's going to strike us all. It already has and will again. By being thrust into neediness, we often find the questions. Then we find whether or not God is just real or is God Emmanuel, God with us, Personally, specifically, in detail, intimately, always present, and never not present, though sometimes slow and sometimes fast. I have worked in the field of recovery of heart in many capacities for almost 35 years. I have seen God quietly move into the questions with a yes for all of those years. I am a witness to what I have seen And more importantly, I'm a witness to what I have experienced myself. Not one of the people I have seen experience Emmanuel have done so without the questions. I've also seen that once the questions have been experienced, the witnesses live with a faith 
that God is present, even when it seems that God keeps saying no. They can live in the memory of having known Emmanuel's presence until they experience the yes again. So no isn't no. No just means waiting until they hear the yes. They honestly are incapable of doing otherwise. I've seen it. Their belief has become a relationship of intimacy and daring. They dare to have gratitude because of the yes, the yes that they have experienced and the yes that they know will come again. So gratitude, daring to have gratitude is not looking around in life and just counting your blessings. It's looking into your life and remembering the experiential memory of how your heart has been touched by a God at your point of need and for which you are grateful and for which you know that even when you are in that position of no approaching and no becoming what is um, tempting to be the failure of faith is actually our capacity even in that to be grateful because he has come, he was before we were, and will come again. So thank you for listening today. I appreciate so much um, us looking into the gift of failure. And um, God bless you. And I look forward to being with you again. Thank you. 